trying to back there tell Bob and forgot to put on my microphone. And then as I put on my microphone, then I realized that, uh, man, I'm all tangled up here. Uh, anyways, there we go. Okay, good. Uh, I realized that I had not put my microphone on, and I'm like, crap. So, uh, and then after I put it on, then I realized batteries were dead. Uh, so Bob had to run and get the batteries for uh, my microphone. Uh, whoo! Um, uh, guys, if you have your Bibles, we're going to go to John chapter 3. And uh, we are going to boogie. Let me get some drink here. John chapter 3. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen, but I hope you have your Bibles, have something to take notes on. Um, make sure you take uh, the bulletin there. Um, has what we got done last week, has that already filled out for you, because my wife is nice. And, uh, and then the rest of it is blank. So please, please, please use that. And, um, all right. So in review, because I want to catch us up, because I, I, poor planning last week, I didn't get to finish the sermon, um, and uh, it just took a little bit longer than what I anticipated and, and even practiced for that matter. Um, and so we're going to finish this up this week, but what I want to do is I want to give us just a very quick overview of where we've been over the past few weeks in the series called The Gospel, What is the Gospel?, um, and then I'm going to dig in a little bit more detail in what we covered last week in order to catch us up to where we're going to go this week, okay? Because this is really super crucial. So, first of all, we talked about in the series of the gospel, we talked about what it demands. And we were in the passage where, where Jesus says that if you do not hate your mother, brother, father, sister, so on and so forth, even yourself, if you do not carry your cross, uh, if you're not willing to lose everything for me, you cannot even be my disciple, so Jesus starts off, like he, the, the group that he was saying this to was not a bunch of believers. This wasn't a bunch of uh, followers or mature Christians. This, he was saying that to a bunch of onlookers. He was saying that to people considering whether or not they wanted or they were going to become a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus basically gives them the ultimate, you have to be willing to hate your brother or sister and you and yourself carry your cross and have total loss in order to be my follower. And so the three things that we talked about in that series or in that sermon was that we have to have a superior love for God, that all of our affections belong to God, period, 100%. There, there is no, we love God the most, and then we love family the second, and then we love our church the third, and then our job, whatever. That's not biblical. All of our, we're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Period. And then the love that we have for our family, the love that we have for the rest of the world, we are loving them with the love of God that is an overflow of our relationship with God. That's the only way to love people how God's called us to love. Our love has an end point. Again, God's love does not have an end point. So that's, our, that's the picture of love. And then this picture of, of um exclusive loyalty that we saw in that passage as well is based upon the fact that Jesus tells them to carry their cross. And I remember sitting in our men's group a number of months ago and, uh, and I asked them, what, what is it like to carry the cross? And they said, well, you know, go to church and read your Bible and, and you know, and, and maybe some persecution and stuff. And, and I'm like, yeah, 
That's why we're going to talk about what it means to carry the cross because that's not what Jesus was talking about. Those are good things. But what Jesus was talking about was, so if you can imagine with me, the someone who, and, and this is, again, this is review for most of us, for the person who is sentenced to death on the cross, they are dead to themselves. They have no hope, no dreams, no future, no plans. They're not sitting there as they're carrying their cross going, I wonder what I'm going to eat tomorrow for lunch. Like, they're dead. And so when Jesus tells them to carry their cross, the picture that he's trying to paint is that you are dead to yourself, dead to your dreams, dead to your desires, dead to your comforts, dead to what you want, and you are alive to Christ's dreams, Christ's comforts, Christ's plans, everything that Christ has. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, for I am crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives through me. That's the whole picture. And at the end of that passage in Luke, he says that, that we have to be able to lose everything. And these are requirements just to be a follower. Like when we ask people to follow Jesus, we say, yeah, um, you, uh, you need to pray this prayer, and you need to go to church and read your Bible and pray. Like that's what it means to be a follower of Christ to us today. And that's, that is not the biblical gospel. That's not what Jesus was talking about when he gave this invitation to be followers of his, he says, you have to have a superior love for me that makes all of the love look like hate. You have to have an exclusive loyalty to me where you are dead to yourself and alive to me, and you have to be willing to lose everything for me. That was his saying, now would you like to be a follower of mine? That was Jesus' call. Quite different than the way we understand the gospel today. Then we went into what is the objective material of the gospel. So we say, well, I believe in the gospel. The gospel is the power that saves us, and, and the gospel is the way I'm going to heaven, and the way I have abundant life now, blah, blah, blah. What is the gospel? What is the objective content of the gospel? What is the gospel, the part that we need to understand? And, um, and that's when I asked the question to you guys, what is the gospel? And it, you and I said, you could not say it's good news because it's much more than good news. There, what is the good news? And, and so then we talked about the sentence, and we revisited the sentence over the past couple of weeks. But just in review, I'm going to read it. The gospel is this. In, in a sentence, and this is drawn from, of course, Romans chapter 3. It says that the just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son, Jesus Christ... God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross, and to show his power over sin in the resurrection, so that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. So really super quick, you've got just God and gracious God. Or he is one God, but he is just and he's gracious, among many, many other things, but just and graciousness. He acts in grace towards hopeless sinful people, hopelessly sinful people. We have no right to stand before the throne. There's no way any of us would ever be good enough to stand before a holy God. And so he looks upon grace when all we deserved is hell. Like the just thing to do to us is to send us to hell, right? So he looks upon us with grace, and in doing so, he sends his son Jesus, where Jesus goes to a cross and gets beaten really badly and saves us. No, that's not what happened. 
Jesus, particularly Jesus agonizing in the, in the garden the night before, was not over the pain he was about to endure. He was agonizing over the wrath he was about to take upon his shoulders. So what happens is on the cross, Jesus literally, God takes the sins of the world and thrusts them upon Jesus' shoulders. And then he pours out a full cup of wrath, the full amount wrath due for these eternally grave sins, for every sin that's ever, like he, he pours out the wrath onto Jesus in that moment on the cross. We call that propitiation. We call that the God, Jesus absorbing our wrath. So he absorbs the justice that is due for our sin. Okay? So then what happens then is God shows his power over sin in the resurrection. And then the question is, how does the benefits of the cross become appropriated or become useful or become applied to our lives? And that, of course, is through faith. And what happens when, when we, in faith, these things become appropriated to our lives, we, we are reconciled to God, and we're reconciled to God forever. So that is the gospel. This God who acts in grace upon us, but he still has to fulfill his justice. He sends his son Jesus to die in our place where he pours out the justice due for our sin onto Jesus. And then by faith, or then he shows his power over sin in the resurrection. And then by faith, we receive that and it becomes appropriated in our lives and we're reconciled to God forever. That is the gospel. That is good news. Like that is really good news. Without that, we go to hell. So that's good news. Can I get at least to get a smile out of everybody? Yeah, I'm working on it. Yeah, smile. Come on. Maybe if I did what he did, I'll say, what is the gospel? Yeah. So just, yeah, just smile for me. There you go. Much, much better. All right. So then the, this begs the question, how has the gospel then been appropriated in your life? And of course, we need to look around at us at who has the gospel not been appropriated in their lives? Who has not received the gospel? But, it's, but again, and that's kind of where we're getting at, it's this gospel, it's more than just an intellectual acknowledgement of facts. It's more than just, yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross. I mean, Satan believes that Jesus died on the cross for people's sins. He's not going to heaven. So there's, God, there's more to it than just an intellectual acknowledgement of facts. Um, this side note. It's not in my notes. I think one of the things that's most pure that, that, that why the church, if we look in church history, like we see times of great persecution, that we see the church grew the most during those times. That's because just a simple and here's, this is just my hypothesis on why, part of why I think it grew so much. Because you're not going to be a part or be a Christian if it's simply an intellectual acknowledgement of facts. But if there's these part where God changes your heart and God transforms your life, where you become a new person, you're born again, that's something worth dying for. But just simply intellectually acknowledging that the sky is blue or that this is a Bible in my hand or that Jesus died on a cross for my sins, that's probably not worth dying for, right? So, 
This brings us up to where we're at now, is how is the gospel appropriated in our lives? How does it become, because it, it, it's, it's, there's more to understand than just simply, well, it's by faith. Yes, that's the very, very simple understand, very, very simple, but it's good for us to understand. It's, it's healthy for us to understand just how this process works. What are the other aspects? What, what has to happen in us before we can even have faith in God? Because here's the key. I think the way a lot of us have, and even maybe in the past, and hopefully don't anymore, and definitely not after today, the way we understand our coming to faith gives us great glory, and we should be receiving no glory when it comes to how we come to faith in Christ. But see, having a biblical understanding of how we come to faith in Christ takes away our glory and gives it all to God. And, you know, for me, it's a personal thing here is that, man, anytime I, anytime I can make sure that I can't receive any glory and only God can, that tends to, uh, to be a little bit better situation. So how is the gospel appropriated in our life? So last week, the two main points we talked about was these two big things. Uh, and right before we get to this passage, I want to repeat these. That number one is that, Jesus, that, that God, what happens in faith is that God reveals our needs. So what happens, we're in this passage on Nicodemus talking about being born again. And what happens is that in this process, God reveals our need. So God revealed the need to Nicodemus, and God reveals our need to us in this process of being born again. Okay, so let me, because I was actually you know, working through this, and I, and I want to make sure you're not confused. So born again is this big process, and faith is a small part of that born again process. Does that make sense? So faith, coming to faith in Christ, is not synonymous with the total process of being born again. But it is a small subsection, a small piece. It is actually our very, very small piece, our very, very small part of the born again process. Right? I don't mean like, like a rainbow. You know, just the process, okay? All right. So, the, in this process of being born again, the first thing is that, that God reveals our needs. So, you don't go to, again, I said this last week, you don't go to the doctor and say, well, you know, I'm not really sick with cancer, but could you just give me chemo treatment anyways? Like, you don't just, you know, and you don't go there and the doctor goes, hey, I'm going to give you chemo treatment. Yeah. Um, breaker just popped. Yep. Uh, we'll keep rolling. Um, thanks, Tim. <laughs> Uh, so you don't go to the doctor, and the doctor, uh, uh, Satan's like, we don't put an end to this stuff. Uh, no. All right, so you don't go to the doctor. The doctor doesn't go to you saying, all right, so you need chemo treatment. You're like going, why? Like, you want to know the need. You need to know. A lot of people, and, 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 you, and I've heard people in our church say this, like, people at my work don't want Christ because they don't think they need anything. And that's true. I mean, how many people do you know that if they really saw a need in their life, that they would accept Christ? I mean, that would probably happen. But we, we think we're fine. We think we're good moral people. We're, we, think, we think we're doing what's right. Even the people who don't go to church, the people who, who don't have anything with religion to do at all, they, they think, well, I don't have a need. 
And guys, we can be used to show them their need, but ultimately that's a change of heart. And ultimately only the Holy Spirit can do that in their lives. So you see, I, I want the people around me and my, my work and stuff to come to faith in Christ. And man, you need to begin with praying that God would reveal their need for the gospel. The second thing uh, is that God changes our heart in the gospel. God changes our heart. This is key. There's two parts to God changing our hearts when it comes to the gospel. The first thing is that it cleanses us. He cleanses us. The second part is that he indwells us. So for most of us, when we're thinking of salvation, we think of how God changes, how God, how God cleanses us and washes, of, washes, of, washes us of our sins. And then we kind of put a period on it right there. We may not intellectually put a period on it right there, but when we live life, sin after sin after sin or defeat, being defeated after being defeated after being defeated, we put a period at the gospel at the end of cleansing and stop with the indwelling part. So in this passage, there we go, in this passage, what happens is Jesus says you have to be baptized, or have water and spirit. There's water and spirit. Water is the, is the Old Testament view of cleansing, a Old Testament picture of cleansing. And then the spirit is this New Testament view of the Holy Spirit indwelling us and living inside of us. So that catches us up. There's four parts that happen in the new birth. And one is that God reveals our need. And second is God changes our heart. So we're going to get to number three and number four, but let's read this verse, um, this passage, verses 1 through 21, and then we'll, uh, we'll continue on with number three. So John chapter 3, verses 1, it says this. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are the teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Let's stop there for just a moment. So this is Nicodemus with an intellectual acknowledgement of facts. So he's saying, God, you must be from, you must be the Jesus. You, you, you could not do these signs unless you are from God. You cannot do these things unless you're from God. So he acknowledges that Jesus is who he says he is. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So at this point, Jesus hasn't made an indictment on Nicodemus. At this point, Jesus is just simply stating a fact that you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Obviously, that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus answered, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or, or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? 
Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So right there, Jesus is just, just basically destroys and, and makes an indictment on Nicodemus. You, know, you, you, you believe in who I am, but you have not been born again. This does not take place in your life. And uh, verse 12, he goes on and says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Some translations say by God, or that the works would be known that they are God's works. Um, Let's pray, and we'll continue. Father, um, our Savior... Your son, who's gone, he he gives us such a thick passage here that is so easy for us to just gloss over and go, well, you must be born again, and God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And that's kind of where we stop. And Father, Jesus spoke these words, and these words were recorded because they're full of meaning and depth and and thickness that we need to wade through. And Father, we already know that Jesus in this passage tells us to do something that is impossible to do ourselves. So Father, the remainder of this sermon, Father, I just pray that you would help us to see the glory in this words, the, the beauty of this picture that Jesus has painted for us that it would change our hearts and our minds and our understanding of the very core of who we are, and that is the gospel that has saved us and transformed our lives. Now, Father, let it not be my words, but your words. And Father, just bless this time. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So, number three. So, first of all, number one, is he reveals our need. Number two, he changes our heart. And number three, God enables our belief. God enables our belief. So if you're looking at this passage, the first 10 verses talk about what God is giving us, talk about what God does in giving us life and bringing us to being born again. So the first 10 verses is God talking about this being born again and what God does in us in order to bring us to be born again. So number one is he reveals our need. 
and then he changes our heart. Then in verse 10 and 11, if you go back to verse 10, it says, Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Verse 11, truly, truly, I said to you, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've sent, but you do not receive our testimony. This is the belief aspect, the faith aspect. He has not received what Jesus is saying. This, this being born again is putting your faith. You've not received our testimony. So what happens then is you'll no, notice in the remainder of this passage, the uh, concept of belief is mentioned almost six or, seven, uh, six or seven times depending on your translation. So if you go on, you know, for God's love the world, that whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. This is the same word we talked about uh, last week in dealing with faith. And that faith is, faith and belief are used interchangeably. Uh, in scripture, sometimes we see scripture talking about it's faith that saves us. Sometimes we see it talk about it's belief that saves us. And sometimes we see it actually mentioned both in the same sentence or in the same concept. And so belief and faith, this is what we're talking about. These two words are basically synonymous. So this belief is what he mentions, the word Jesus uses here. And we obviously, we know this is more than just simply an intellectual acknowledgement of certain truths. So here's what I want us to see in this passage. That this believing or having faith... I want you to see this in the context of what it means to be born again. You see, faith, again, is just a small part of this being born again process. Now, let me say another small tidbit that's good for you to keep in mind is that this born again process can happen very, very quickly. Like, within a moment, someone's need is revealed. They see their need. God changes their heart. He enables their belief. They act in faith. They accept Christ and their life is transformed. I mean, that can happen within a matter of moments. For some people, like the revealing the need is a process. For some people, it may take a year or two years or ten years where God is in the process of slowly revealing their need to them and then changing their heart. So this is a process. So faith is just a very small part of that process. So what I want you to understand is God reveals our need for him. This is something only he can do. Now he can use you and I to point out facts, like to point out that our sinfulness or, or whatever just like in this series, and, and, and for some of you, I, I know some of your guys' church backgrounds, uh, and some of you guys I don't, but we tend, preachers tend to shy away from preaching how desperately we need the gospel, how hopelessly sinful we are, how dreadfully evil, how morally evil we are. Um, and guys, until we understand just how desperately we need the gospel, we, or let, me, let me say this, to the extent to which we see how evil we are is the extent to which we see how much we need the gospel. So the more we can understand how evil we are, the more we understand just how much we need the gospel. And so what happens is God reveals our need for him, and only he can do that. Because remember, only he can open blind eyes. He can, only he can turn someone who loves the darkness and turn them towards light. Only God can do that. 
The picture is someone who is dead coming to life. Who can do that? Who, who, when they are dead, says, I want to come to life now? Only God can do that, right? The second thing he does, he changes our heart. That's only he can do. Again, he cleanses us. He indwells us. This is the means by which he does this. So the means by which this stuff is made possible in our lives or is appropriate in our lives is by belief in the gospel or faith in Christ is another way to say that. This is where we see our act in salvation. It's in the context of God's act in salvation. And this is crucial. This is so, so, so crucial. We talk about, it's all I ever hear taught and preached is, well, you just need to put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. And there's so much more. That's just a small part of the bigger context of what God does in salvation. And I think it robs people of their understanding of their faith and coming to faith in Christ when we do not emphasize God's act in salvation. Because without God's act of salvation, you and I will never get to the point where we can actually put our faith in Christ. So, God, uh, again, do not miss this because both of these, they go together all throughout Scripture. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Many people debate, and I'm going to stay away from fancy terms here, um, but many people debate on just how much God does in salvation versus how much man does in salvation. This is typically like the election free will debate uh, or the Calvin-Arminian debate. Um, And what's interesting is I think in Scripture, obviously I I believe both are taught. I mean, I believe that free will is taught. I believe election is taught. I mean, it's very, very clearly in Scripture. Uh, You can't argue with it. Um, But I think there's a point in that in that debate that we get to, kind of like the Trinity, where we can begin to understand aspects of the Trinity and how they can be three and how they can be one and at the same time, but yet separate, blah, blah, blah. But there's a point at which our minds cannot comprehend the depthness and the richness of the Trinity in that doctrine. It's a mystery. Not a mystery that is mystical or weird, but a mystery that our minds cannot grasp. And thank God there's things that our minds cannot grasp. Otherwise, you and I would be God, right? Only God, there's things that that He can grasp everything. Same thing when it comes to election and free will. There's a mystery. I I believe with further understanding than what we're even going to go through today, I think we can understand it further than the depth at which we're going to talk about it. But there is a point at which we cannot explain it all. It is a mystery. There is a mystery. Not a contradiction. Guys, faith is no question our act. Faith is no question our act. But this act takes place within the context of God's act. Our faith is impossible without God changing our heart and revealing our need and enabling our belief. Like, it's impossible. But nevertheless, we, it's still our act, and it's still, we're still held accountable for that act. But it's within the context of God's grace and God's mercy. They go together. What happens in salvation is God in his great sovereignty performs a miracle in our lives by which the Holy Spirit transforms us. God in his great wisdom brings about salvation in a way that shows his 
great glory. I'm going to give you a few verses. We're not going to read these, but uh, you can write these down. All over Scripture, John 6, verse 34. John 6, verse 34. Jesus says, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws. I'm sorry. No one can come to himself unless the Father draws him to me. That's what Jesus says. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. This is crucial. This is crucial. Acts 16, 14. Acts 16, 14. Again, these are not my words. This is God's word. Go look it up. God, the Lord, opened Lydia's heart to hear the gospel. That means before this act was done on her, done to her, she could not accept the gospel. God opened her heart to hear the gospel message. She responded to the gospel, yes. God opened her heart to the gospel, yes. Both of these things happen. Acts eleven eighteen. Acts eleven eighteen. God granted Gentiles repentance unto salvation. Even the act of repentance itself is a gift of God. Do you understand that? Even the act of our repentance is a gift of God. Acts 14, 27. God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Acts 14, 27. God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Last one is this, Acts 15, 9. It was God who purified their hearts. And God did it by faith. The picture is this. Faith is the means by which this is appropriated in our lives. This salvation is appropriated in our lives in the context of this picture of being born again, which is in the context of God's grace and mercy. This is the picture that we see. So the question of what happens, what happens in saving faith? So faith is just a small part of this broader context of being born again, which is in this passage, John 3, 1 through 21. And then it's in the context of God's greater grace and glory. So this faith, what happens in saving faith? Now this is going to be the part where you and I are probably fairly familiar with the gospel. And when we think of the gospel, we think of Jesus dying on the cross and then turning to faith. And then we'll talk about what we're just getting ready to say right now. But obviously, like we've talked about, there's so much more to the gospel than just that. But this is the part we're going to be familiar with. What happens in saving faith? Again, this is all within the context of God's grace. This is crucial. We have to understand this because what happens is, well, it's I put my faith in Jesus, and it was I who saw the glory, and it was I, and it's not what it's about. We start taking credit for it when it comes to that. So this all happens within God's grace. Number one is that we turn from sin. What happens in saving faith is we turn from sin. So this stuff was delightful. This was the sin in my life. And this, is, this is the stuff that I enjoyed and, and, and whatever. This is the sin in my life. I turn from sin away and headed there. That's the idea of repentance, right? It's turning away. It's doing an about face, right? If Going to John, going back to that passage, John chapter 3, verse 19 through 21. He gives us this picture that we love darkness 
But when our eyes were open, we saw the light. He says this in verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever should do what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that what works have been done have been carried out in God. God carrying these works out. You know, in a very simplified way of looking at this, God showed us his beauty. Something much more desirable. In the gospel, he shows us a path that may not be safer or more comfortable, but he changes our heart to not seek necessarily the comfort, but to seek the beauty of who he is. And we turn from that and we begin to see just how much greater what he has to offer is compared to our sin and our lives. But again, you and I loved darkness. God had to reveal our need and change our hearts because our heart desired darkness. So says, turn from sin. That which you like now, you begin to hate. And of course, again, that's, this is a process, but there is a beginning point, and there is an obvious beginning point. And that which you did not like, because you and I were haters of God, we begin to love. So the gospel invitation, I mean, it happens all over Scripture, Acts 2.38, says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 3.19 says, Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Repent. This is the idea of turning from sin. It's the same thing. It's repentance. Turn from sin. Repentance. Synonymous. The second thing that happens, when we turn from something, when I turn away from looking at the drums, I turn to looking at something, and that something has to be Jesus Christ. That's number two. We trust in Christ. So we turn from the things that we love, and we turn to this new thing that we may not even understand all the complexities of it, and we never will, and maybe until we get to heaven, but we put our trust in him, our, our, our faith in him, and if we go to uh, John three fourteen through 15, this is awesome. I love this, the picture here. He says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's the same thing. We, we look to Christ as the only one who can cleanse us from our sins and the only one who can make it possible for you to have a clean heart. So we turn from sin. We trust in Christ. And this is all within the context of God enabling our belief. Now, again, God enabling our belief. This is us who love darkness, who are dead, who, who have no spiritual life. It, it requires an act of someone from above. And this is part of this is from last week where we talked about this idea of being born again. Is that that's something only God can do. Matter of fact, the, the, the language that Jesus is using there literally means to be born from above. Born again, to be born from above. It's something, something above us has to do this act in us. But yet again, it's still our faith. It's just a small part of this broader context. So in the new birth, 
the first three things that God reveals our need, God changes our heart, God enables our belief. And the last part of the new birth is this, is that God transforms our lives. God transforms our lives. Now, really, really want to be careful in how we talk through this, okay? Because this is really crucial. I want you to understand that this transformation that happens in our life ultimately is a process. But there is an initial transformation that takes place. For some people, that transformation looks huge. For some people, it doesn't look quite so obvious. But this transformation takes place. There's a beginning point to this transformation. Verse, chapter 3, verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been, done, have been carried out in God. And so this person who comes to the light, this works and there's a transformation that takes place. So, so it is clearly seen that God has done these works, that, that these works are carried out in God and our modern gospel, and here's where I want to draw this divide for us. This modern gospel that we hear taught, and I hear taught all the time, and that maybe even some of us had an understanding of, it, it is what you do to get to God. Now, I know a lot of you are thinking, well, I, I believe that, you know, it's God did it all, even before Renovation Church, I, God did it all, and, and I just put my faith in Him. But, but even in that, in which that view is, is basically correct, but even in that... We still put such a huge emphasis on what it takes for me to get to God, for me to put my faith in God. And because we kind of relegate it to this. We, well, salvation is something God did on a cross, but then I have to do the rest. You know what I'm talking about? So it's something God did on the cross, but like I have to take those steps to get to God. And, and the fact is that's not biblical. It's God who reveals it. It's God who helps us even take those steps to get to the cross. The biblical gospel is what God does. Again, he reveals our, he changes our hearts, enables our belief, transforms our lives. And then by grace, through faith, so it's our faith through grace or by grace that we turn from sin and we turn to Christ. And this transformation takes place in our lives. So let's talk about this transformation. Two truths what happens when God transforms our lives? Two things that happen when God transforms our lives. The first one is this. He transforms our lives for our eternal good. For our eternal good. For our eternal good. John 3.21 But whoever does what is true comes to the light. Coming to the light is for our good. It's doing what is true. It's coming to the light. This is for our good. This is the picture of darkness and light. It's the picture of darkness and light. Dark in Scripture equals evil. Light equals good. You used to love evil, but now you begin, keyword begin, to see and love and experience that which is good. You used to love evil, but now you begin to see. And when God changes your heart, when God, oh, sorry, when God changed your heart, if you're a believer, when God changed your heart, he transformed it so that now you begin to see what is glorious and that he is worthy. 
Now, again, this is a process, but it begins, and your heart went through an initial transformation that you should know and be able to see the evidence of that transformation. Again, for some of us, it's, it's, it's going from beer and drugs and alcohol and then on to life and glory in Christ, but still struggling from sin. For some of us, it was I was born in the pew and, and uh, I did the church thing and I really, I really hated God actually until I realized my need for him and then he changed my heart and I began to love him. See how the two, to at least to our, from our perspective, seem very, very different. Um, the fact is, is both of them hated God and both of them's hearts were transformed to love God. From darkness to light. So um, even the best things in this world pale to comparison to God and what he changes our hearts to love. And what happens, our satisfaction, guys, this is, this is where we miss out in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is that our satisfaction in God at this point begins to grow, begins to grow. It's a process, but it begins to grow, and it should continue to grow. When, when we reach a plateau in our faith, it's because we have failed and to continue seeking satisfaction in God. We begin to become okay with where we're at instead of desiring more of where he's at and desiring more of him. So what happens is we get comfortable with it. Well, this is okay. I'm okay here instead of desiring him more. So the first thing is he transforms our lives for our eternal good and he transforms us for his eternal glory. For his eternal glory. Going back to that same verse in John 3, verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God or carried out by God. These works are evidence of what God is doing. That's the picture we're painting here at the end of this verse. These works are evidence of what God is doing. It's carried out in who? God. What God, the question is this, what is God doing in the new birth? What does God do in this new birth? Again, we're in this context of Nicodemus and Jesus and new birth. What happens is, number one, he's showing his power. God is showing his glory he is making it clear that it is only he that could have done this. He's making it clear that only... Again, when Jesus says, you must be born again, he's telling Nicodemus to do something that is impossible for Nicodemus to do. So if you want to go to heaven, you've got to do this thing that's impossible for you to do. So I guess you're just going to hell. I mean, that's, that's, what, that's the picture Jesus is painting. That the only way this new birth is possible is for, for God to do it. And your small little part of faith that even God himself enables that as well. This is why we have this picture of this new birth. It's only possible by God. You know, a few weeks ago, again, we talked about this, that Jesus died on the cross for God. Like, we, we, we talked about how Jesus died on the cross for God more than or before he died even for us. He died on the cross for God's glory, for his justice to be shown, for his glory and and redeeming his people. He died for God more than he died for you and I. Because God's glory is more important than your and I's rescue from destruction. 
right? Okay. Yeah, that would be idolatry if you disagree, okay? Uh, God's glory is much more important than you and I. And so Christ died for God's sake, again, more than our sake. Our eternal good shows his eternal glory. And that's where these two things meet so good together. I love that phrase. If you want to write that down, our, our eternal good shows God's eternal glory. And the more we are satisfied in him, the more he is glorified. The more we are satisfied in him, the more we are glorified because we are being transformed from darkness to light. And it's only something that God can do. But you see, when, whenever we think about becoming a better person, we think about, I made this change in my life, and, and I, you know, I got more on top of my, my to-do list here, and, you know, and, and, and I stopped hating so much and being so pessimistic. We start thinking about all these things that, that we did, and, and, and we robbed God of the glory that he's due because he's the one that's doing that in our hearts. He's the one that's making those changes. It's transforming our lives. Again, this comes down, this is another side point. We'll talk about it another time. But we go after our sin at such a symptomatic, shallow level that it just keeps reoccurring and reoccurring and reoccurring. And we go, well, I wonder why. I made this change, I made this change. It's because we didn't attack the sin at the root of it. And that's in our heart, where our heart is evil and desired. That, that's where we need to attack it at. Right? But only God can do that. That's why he says in Ezekiel that he will give them a new heart. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will turn, take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is God who does this. But here's what's really cool. In talking about this being for God's eternal glory, if we go back to that Ezekiel passage where it says, I will give you a new heart and all this, if we go right before that passage, right before, in verse, uh, chapter 36, verse 22, it says this, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. And the about to act is to give you a new heart, is to change you so that you will obey my statutes and do my commands. So this act that I'm about ready to do, he says this, O house of Israel, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. It's the same thing for you and I. When God does this act in us, when God brings about this transformation in our heart, when God reveals our need, enables our belief, when he, what happens is God gets great glory because, listen, listen, because he takes someone who is spiritually dead and makes them alive. And makes them alive. He, he takes someone who is morally evil and now they love which is good. That's only something that he can do. But again, a shallow look at, well, I just made this change and made this change. No, you loved darkness, and God changed your heart to love light. And only he gets the credit for that. God gets great glory. So God transforms us for our good and for his glory.
And you bring these two together. This is where we start, where we begin to understand what is biblical salvation. What is biblical salvation? And I know I've been hitting this hard about it's not praying a prayer. It's not walking an aisle. And it's so much more than that. Yes, you can get saved. You, the, the, the praying can represent the moment in which you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? But your salvation began prior to that. Of God revealing your need and changing your heart. And then in that moment, God enabled your belief and you saw the light. You loved for the very first time that which is good. And then God transformed your life, began this transformation. And, you know, this brings us to a question that, so, and we all, I'm sure, know people. What about that person who said they got saved? They said they prayed a prayer, and, but there's no change in their life. What about the person who, who prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or whatever, said, I'm saved, I follow Jesus, maybe even got baptized, and, uh, and there's no change in their life? Is that person saved? Is that person saved? You know... Um, I don't know if I've ever heard a preacher say this. Uh, biblically, there's no possible way that they're saved. You see, I can see where someone who has such a man-centered salvation can say, well, they accepted Jesus, and they, but they're still just working out some things. But it's not a man-centered salvation. It's a God-centered salvation. That's biblical. So the question is why? Why are they why are they not saved? Couple things. Number one, nowhere in scripture do we see salvation described as a mere human decision by which someone describes decides, sorry, decides to get out of the line going to hell and jump into the line going to heaven. Nowhere in scripture is someone Saved by simply deciding, well, I don't want to go to hell. I'd rather go to heaven. You know, this causes a struggle in my heart because, um, and I'm sure there are people who have gotten saved through this, but we hear a lot of, uh, you know, we always joke about it in preacher talk about hellfire and brimstone preaching. Uh, and that's the preacher, you're going to go to hell, and you know, which is true. And I just told you all that you would go to hell too. I just didn't do it screaming and yelling. But, and I wasn't trying to scare you. I just telling you the facts. And, and uh, like people getting scared into coming to Christ. And, and I, believe some people, I, I believe some people have gotten saved through that. And, and, but what I'm saying is I think the opportunity... For someone to simply make an intellectual acknowledgement of facts because they do not want to go to hell and for them to still end up in hell. There's no transformation, no heart change, no revealing, any, none of that going on. So, but guys, seriously, like, if we're looking at a, at a, at a donkey, right? Let's stop trying to call it a horse. Let's just call it a donkey, right? If someone's... If there's been no transformation in their life, guys, if we don't go to them and say, look, this has not happened, this, there's no evidence of that, guys are going to go to hell. 
And if, and if you're the one in the watchtower and you see the army coming and you don't warn your people, guys, if, if, if it's a donkey, let's just call it a donkey. You know, I, I, we're going to hurt feelings. Yes, I know. But look, this transformation that should have taken place in your life. Now, we can do that tactfully and lovingly, watching the log in our own eye and all that stuff. Like, we need to search our own hearts. But listen, uh, if it's a donkey, let's just call it a donkey. Now, Scripture describes salvation as a transformative experience where God raises you out of death into life and shows his great glory in your transformation. Second thing is this, is when we create, guys, when we create this idea that salvation is disconnected from transformation, when we create this idea that born-again Christians' lives look like non-Christians' lives, the first thing we're doing is we're blaspheming God. Is this ridiculous? I mean, it's, just, it's not biblical. Um, what we're saying in that, in, in, in that Christians' lives look just like, what we're saying is that this God can deliver someone out of hell but is not able to deliver them from their sin in their daily lives. Do you know how unscriptural that is? We're saying that God is able to pay the ultimate price but does not have the power to give you victory over sin day by day by day by day. And that's just not true. This God who saves us from eternal damnation, the God who raised his one and only son from the grave, that God, that same God, is more than powerful and more than satisfied in giving us victory over sin day by day by day by day. We put a period at the cleansing. As he is more than good to that. And we have robbed God of the glory that is due in salvation by saying that he can do this. He can get me out of hell, but he can't help me deal with the sin on my daily basis. As we all have sins. We all have pet sins. We all have obvious sins. We all have hidden sins in our lives. So the question is this. Is has God transformed your life? Has God transformed your life? Do you love that which is good? And is that increasing in your life? Are you beginning to hate more that which is evil? Is that increasing in your life? Doesn't mean you're never going to go back to this. I mean, you know, that, that happens. It's not okay, but it happens. This is part of this transformation. Um, Here's, here's what I love about that last verse that we just read, verse 21. The question come, that comes out of that verse is this. Is your life a picture of the glory of God at work? Or is your life a picture of the absence of the glory of God at work? Um, I heard someone one time, I was counseling and they said man I just it's like the roughest time of my life I'm just changing so much and it's so uncomfortable and I said hallelujah that's awesome I was talking to one other person said I've never been so uncomfortable in my faith since I came to Renovation Church hallelujah good keep coming back your life a picture of the glory of God at work? Man, your life, you should be changed and being challenged. 
not just from me on Sunday, but from your daily walk with Christ and in his word, being challenged. <clears throat> um, again, I'm not asking this question. Listen, listen very, very carefully. We're almost done. I'm not asking, are you working enough to prove your salvation? Are you working enough to seal it or keep your salvation? That's not what I'm talking about. Guys, we, what I'm talking about is... God actively changing your heart or have you told him no more I'm comfortable where I'm at or was there never a transformation from the very beginning one person's lost the other person's just dreadfully backslidden does your life display the glory of God you know has he revealed your need has he changed your heart has he enabled your faith have you put your faith in Christ have you been born again that's the question and guys, I know a lot of us, you know, we're understanding our faith and our salvation, maybe the, the best we ever have. And this is good. It's not for us to get comfortable and just further our knowledge and understanding, but it's for us to know how then to take the gospel to the people around us. It's for us to go, okay, so I understand this is the gospel. So like, just very, very, let me give you some application here. That God, we, when we go to that person at work, and I said this earlier, and, and, and they don't think they need Jesus. Well, we know that from what we just talked about, that God has to reveal their need. So we have to start with praying that God would reveal their need, that God would change their heart, that God would show them what they need. Because if we begin with just us saying words and, and, and doing actions and whatever, then we've bypassed prayer and we've bypassed God's act. So have you been born again? Has, has this gospel become a reality in your life? And you know, I, I, I want to say this, man. If there's anyone in here that's wondering, has the gospel been a reality in your life? This is, this is good. This is good. Because this questioning will lead you to one of two paths. It will lead you to one, either the result of great encouragement um, I don't know when I've said this over the past few weeks, but I said, you know, going through this series, like, I've really been challenged in my faith to go, God, is this a reality for me? And I, will, I stand before you today saying, I am, have never been so encouraged in my faith and my walk than I stand to you before you today. Like, I know that I'm saying, I know that God has changed my life. So that's the one path. And the other two is that uh, you would wrestle over it. You would wrestle over it and, and go and realize I'm, I'm not saved. This is not a reality in my life. My heart's not been changed. Yeah, I try to like those good things, but all I end up doing is just going right back to here because I don't really love those good things. I just think I need those good things so that I can save my skin. You see, particularly if you've grown up in the church like myself, you can grow to like those things just because you think it's going to save your skin or because I know I should like those things versus I love those things because my heart is being changed. It's a big difference. And by wrestling with the Holy Spirit, God, what, is this true of me? Is this true in my heart? You know, I think, the number, I know the Holy Spirit is good to reveal that change or that need to you. You know, we can't keep on living this routine like Nicodemus did. If you remember from last week, Nicodemus, 
Um, in this passage, Nicodemus was a, was a spiritual leader. He was, he was a leader, of the, you know, a big, big Pharisee guy. And, and he spent his whole life learning how to do these things so that he could get to God. And Jesus says, basically takes the legs on the table and cuts them all off. He says, you know what? You have to be born again, which is only an act that God can do. And so for you, if you're a believer and we've been tr- you've been trying to, to do these acts that would, that would save your skin, and Jesus cuts those legs out and says, look, the only thing that can get you to heaven, the only thing that can change your life is an act of God. And so you just throw yourself, guys, this is the picture, throw yourself before God, saying, I, I cannot do this myself. This, I, I, I need you. I need you. And I need you to create a desire in me for you and a love for you and and even if those of us who are saved like we we need to throw ourselves before God all the time and say God I need you I need you to create a greater desire inside of me for you and it's hard I was telling someone yesterday we don't want to spend the time before God wrestling out these aspects of our faith what we want to do is we just want a checklist so I can say I did my God thing today I read my Bible Instead of spending the time in prayer, I'm the same way. I like my checklists, my to-do list. But let's spend that time in prayer. We're going to sing one more song. Because I just want to give you guys an opportunity as we're singing this next song. It's a song that we sang already today. And reflect on these and the truth. Man, take this time to pray. Man, if you need to, man, if you, if you need to sit in your seat and just pray and wrestle over this with God, do that. Do that. Solve this, you know, seek God before we walk out these doors. But use this time to reflect. And if you are a believer and you know you are, man, then sing these to God like you've never sang them before. Let's pray and the band's going to come up and we'll sing. Father, thank you that we can know these truths. Father, thank you that you revealed these, what could have been and what were at one point mysteries. Father, you revealed these to us so that we could be reconciled to you. Father, um, for that I give you praise. And Father, as we sing, uh, Father, I just pray that... um, for those of us who, who are saved, that, that we have a relationship with you, that, that we could sing in light of the truths that we now know or now know more fully. And Father, if there's anyone who's not saved, Father, I pray that you would, um, that you would tug at their heart, that you would reveal their need, that you would change their life and Father, that you would enable their belief. And Father, I don't assume that anybody is saved, not even in this place, not even the membership of Renovation Church, Father. That is between you and them ultimately. So Father, just um, as we worship, let it be true that um, we've grown closer to you today. And Father, it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.